0: One two five nine. rector, deacon, Eller, What the hell?
1: So, Ethan, you sent me this video about the IRD, and I think I'm losing my mind.
0: <laughs> yes, it's an older video. Um, I found it on Facebook, a uh, a, a fellow um, pastor from my home conference who uh, is really a five-star kind of a guy. His name is the Reverend Justin Morningstar. I don't think he listens, but Justin, I might send you uh, this episode. Do it. um, After it's done. But he posts this video on his Facebook. Uh, I had never seen this video before. It's an older video, but I was like, oh, it's about the IRD. I better watch it. (laughs) And I did. And uh, I didn't like it either. So...
1: (laughs) I like that you um, your reaction to it's about the IRD is I better watch it, whereas my reaction is I don't want to think about this.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, the evil organization that is the IRD, we should probably keep a, a closer eye on it since they're remarkably successful at what they do. So,
1: yeah. Well, and that's the thing that I, that really surprises me the most about the IRD is that they are very successful at um, fomenting uh, discord amongst uh, the the United Methodist Church in general, I guess. Um, But they're also super not known. (laughs) Like we did our most like listened to episode is the episode where we first talked about the IRD in which I spent all of the episode being like white, this is white. Like you just, you start to lose like your grasp of reality for a minute and you're like all conspiracy theories are real bring out the lizard people you know like that's what the ird feels like to me Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: so what so ethan like beyond what you know in the video what do you know about the how long the ird has been around like what what is your personal kind of headcanon your understanding like right now of the ird
0: Uh, For right now, I don't don't have much uh, like concrete information other than the video and other than the some of the different ways I have noticed Mark Tooley, who runs the the UM Action portion of the IRD, the the wing of the IRD, whose job it is to destroy the United Methodist Church. Uh, I know I, I follow Mark Tooley doing some different things every now and again, like if he writes for Good News magazine, which he'll do sometimes or. Um, stuff like that. But I don't have like concrete, like I haven't done that kind of research. Like when does it start, at least not outside of this video or outside of cursory, you know, looking up things from time to time. But uh, I do know that the IRD um, uh, sort of begins to be a thing um, and begins to, to like uh, really begin its mission of dismantling mainline churches um, in the 80s. I know that but that's all I got and the other thing I know from this video which frankly baffled my little mind is um the Richard Newhouse connection do you know who Richard Newhouse is
1: oh I know the name is so familiar but I can't place it
0: so Richard Newhouse so in the video uh and listeners there's a chance that Joe and I'll be working on sort of a long form um couple of episodes on the IRD in the future. So we're not going to dive super much into like specifics right now, but um, in the video that I saw on Justin Morningstar's Facebook page, um, there's a moment in which uh, the, the folks in the video begin to talk about how so much of the sort of the board of directors of the IRD is made up of, of conservative Catholics. Yeah. Which, which blew my mind for a moment and filled me with so much Protestant resentment that no. like, I didn't know what to do about it. Like I, uh, ugh, I just, I, 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 hate it. But Richard Newhouse is, um, well, I actually, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but uh, he could be Richard Newhouse, uh, is connected as for a long time editor of first things magazine.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I, let's let's switch a little bit we'll come back to the to the institute is it the Institute for religion and democracy
0: Institute for religion and democracy yes
1: yeah yeah we'll come back to the irD in a second you want to talk about good news because I have a very Ooh. conflicted not good news Jesus first things first I have thing, a very yeah. conflicted relationship with that magazine
0: <laughs> i I do as well um so first I first started reading first things uh like material when I got into David Bentley Hart, because for a long time, and as far as I know, it might be different now, now that David Bentley Hart has really moved. He's always been on the left. He's just now been open about being on the left in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for a long time, you could get on First Things Magazine's website and read for free pretty much all of David Bentley Hart's uh, essays that he contributed to that. Um, but that's where I first started hearing about it, that it was um, through the work of David Bentley Hart, because he would write many of his more famous essays uh, came or come from, you know, and are published by First Things. First Things is a uh, public theology publication.
1: Oh, I did not realize that, that that's what it was.
0: Yeah, um, that's that's sort of how they at least marketed themselves for a long time and and they um you know are interested there's not a ton of protestant um contributors first things there are some but but it's very much a sort of a catholic and orthodox um post liberal uh publication and this is at the time when when you said I'm a post liberal that that did not necessarily mean I'm a fascist, you know, it it, it meant uh, a number of things, it could mean that you were experimenting with certain forms of radical democracy, you know, that that focused on that was a little bit more like the Catholic worker movement. Mm. Right? Like, we would not associate Dorothy Day with liberalism, right? Like Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day is not a liberal as like a political liberal, Right. Right. Dorothy Day has a very in the Catholic worker movement has a very socialist bent, a very um, obviously it's deeply Catholic, but but like uh, uh, communitarian, you know, kind of bent. Uh, It would not be democratic in the way we imagine democracy and republicanism. Right. Like it's just not the way it is. It's focused on smallness and on. Um, mutual aid and and things like that, um, but Dorothy Day might be can she might have if the term was around maybe considered herself a post liberal right, but but the magazine, in my relationship to this magazine and this publication was sort of rooted in that like that was a place that I could read cultural criti- critical essays or political and economic critical theological essays. Um, from a perspective that um, Wesley wasn't really terribly interested in. It wasn't like people at Wesley, like faculty at Wesley, were spending a lot of time with this stuff, right? Um, it wasn't, it's not really social gospel That's more of a political liberal sort of sense. It wasn't really liberation theology. You know, it's, it, it, it presented itself in that way. Uh, and then uh, with the rise of Trump, you first things similar to the Babylon B and what I would actually not be terribly surprised if the Babylon B as we research uh, the IRD uh, comes up again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I
1: kind of have that fear. Not fear, but like, no, actually fear. Like there, there was a point in time where the Babylon B was like kind of non-offensive and um, boy have things changed.
0: Yes, yes, and and that's I think what happens with first things, right? Like there is this very clear moment where where culture warrior mentality sort of takes over first things magazine, and this is around the time when DBH kind of goes, uh, "What are you guys doing? You know, like like <laughs> what's going on? Like like David Bentley Hart, you know, when he would write for first things would write about um, Western culture's obsession with psychologizing spirituality. One of my favorite pieces he wrote for first things to this day, still probably my favorite, one of my favorite pieces DBH has ever written, um, was a, a, a reflection on his time when he studied abroad in Oxford, uh, as an, as an undergrad, he, he spends a little bit, he spends like a year working on South Asian religions in Oxford. Um, and uh, while he while he was there, in this essay, he tells a story about a gentleman who uh, was in the program with him, an older guy who who had, was one of those people, and and this is how he d- DBH described it was one of those uh, eccentric people that sticks around in religion and theology programs as long as they possibly can, who okay. who are um, strange and ultimately harmless but, like, are interested in esoteric things and, and, you know, will sometimes make odd claims, right? Like Beth McKinney, friend of a pod, uh, we just had an episode with her on The Bride wore White, will sometimes tell stories about her uh, fellow students at Union who, like, there was one gentleman who took an Old Testament a Hebrew Bible class with her uh, who said that he was taking this class because he had already discovered the lost city of Atlantis, and was trying to find the Garden of Eden. Oh my God! Um, it was that kind of a guy. A guy like that was was with uh, was was who David Bentley Hart was reflecting on. And uh, the thing about this guy was that he loved Jesus very much, and um, was very nice, very good, eccentric and strange, and believed he saw fairies everywhere he went. Hmm. And. Um, most of the people in his life were just like, okay, (laughs) whatever, man. Like, that's fine. Um, But years and years later, uh, Dave Bentley Hart discovers that he died. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he ends up going over to, for this gentleman's funeral. And when he's there, he learns that uh, about five years before his death, um some well meaning people got a hold of him and put him into you know like like got him like a psychologist or a psychiatrist and got him on all of this antipsychotic medicine and the last 5 years of his life he never saw any more fairies and he died miserable hmm. and uh And, and and he was, he apparently told people, he was like, oh no, the fairies are still there. It's just that I've been cut off from them. You know, I can't see them anymore. You know, the medicine keeps me from talking to them. And, uh, apparently he, over those last five years of being on this medicine just became more and more of a recluse until eventually he died alone, you know, in his house. Um, and, uh, while he was at the funeral, this uh, a person said to to David Bentley Hart. He was like, "Well, at least he died sane." Mm. And and David Bentley Hart says at the end of the essay, this is how he ends the essay. Right after that story, he says, "Truly, our age is a barbaric age." Who?
1: Who? Oh, man, we could unpack that for years. Like,
0: like, I'll send I'll find that essay and I'll send it to you. It's it's one of my favorite essays because it, it demonstrates it's a great essay for a lot of reasons. But like it, it sort of demonstrates Dave, uh, an aspect of Dave Bentley Hart's thinking that I, I think is really lovely where where he's he's just like he's just like, why can't fairies be real, guys? Like, who is hurting people? in their, in, in people's belief in spirits and fairies and the powers of the world that uh, are, if there is a God, are under God's dominion and love and stewardship. What is the problem with this? You know, and, and I think it's an interesting essay that, that demonstrates that sort of element to his thought and, and as a good cultural critique, right? Like David Bentley Hart is suggesting that there is something in, not that he's anti-science or anti-psychology or anti-medicine, not at all. Cause we know he's not, we know he's a socialist. We know he, in his political writings during COVID, we know, we know how he feels about it, but that the attitude that says this harmless good man who sees fairies is sick, yeah. Right. And that needs to be squashed. And when it's squashed, we can all pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, well, even though he died miserable, at least he died sane.
1: Oh. So I, I think there's actually like a really great intersection there with what with what happens often with the radicalization of people on the right. Not more than the left, but in like a concrete way that I understand on the right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which is the the foot in the door is like why what's wrong with believing something that's against the norm or um believing in things that other people think aren't real? um or even like believing in something like Atlantis or getting really into like biblical uh, archaeology you know like what's the harm in in being interested in these things and mm-hmm. like i think there is a a a place that you can be with that that's totally fine but the next step with something like Atlantis quickly becomes the idea that there was a hidden civilization of uh aryans that you provided culture for the entire world that that is only one more step away from like flat out white supremacy and conspiracy theories and the lizard people like it's it, it just the the and that for the preservation of the white race we must eliminate all other minorities right um and i so i get anxious when people like start down really any road, it, it it's part of, it's part of the X Files factor, right? That um, that Fox Mulder goes from like aliens could be real to like the Draconians have requested a blood sacrifice and our government is covering it covering it up, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And that's fine for like, something that's fiction, but when you start getting into conspiracy thinking. fiction and nonfiction are that that line is completely blurred and whether somebody tells you that something is real or not you cannot believe them you cannot trust them right um and it allows you to believe a lot of the really vicious conspiracies that we saw in the trump presidency that like still continue today Mm -hmm. but but i don't know how to like ride that line between how do you believe that there's magic in the world but like stop stop yourself before you go way too far down any particular rabbit hole like i love mothman but there are definitely people who like mothman and think that like the government is covering up the existence of aliens because they're planning to sacrifice us all as food so i like i, I I, I guess maybe my point with that is that like there is, there is a note that's struck in that essay um, that on one hand can be really lovely. Like we do not need to be forced into full rationalization of things um, because there is in fact stuff that we don't know. And also like there is a loveliness in not knowing um, and, and in believing that there's something beyond ourselves. Right. Um, it, but also there is a, a, that door opens up into a hallway and doors off of that hallway lead to some scary places. And so I can see why something like that would be in what First Things eventually became. Um, I, so you introduced me to First Things. It's in the Wesley Theological Seminary Library, like they subscribe to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or they used to, who knows now. But um, when I was dating Jeff, so my like second year of seminary, I had mentioned, I think an essay essay by David Bentley Hart, but like maybe something else. I was like, oh, I was reading this thing. Um, And he's like, where where did you find this? Like I could go look into this. And I was like, "Uh, I think it's called First Things. And he goes, oh, that, that's trash. And I was like, well, you're an atheist and sometimes a a jerk about religious things. (laughs)
0: So
1: (laughs) i like, I don't know. But I, I did like seed that seed of death. in my brain and then as like first things began their transformation into what it is now I was like turns out Jeff was right turns out he was right on this one Um, yeah, and it's the same thing with the Babylon Bee, that like, you know, there probably were seeds of more conservative things in it. But like, you felt like you were in basically neutral territory. Like, it felt like it was poking fun at the existence that I think a lot of people have in mainline churches, especially larger mainline churches, Mm -hmm. that, um, that is like, sure, there are conservative people there. But like, the there's also the potential for things to go completely off the rails and the potential gets exploited by, by people like the IRD. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. And you know, like some of my favorite, like old Babylon B stuff was stuff that had nothing really to do with politics, right? (laughs) Stuff that had to do with the church. Um, no, I think that the, you know, your, the question of like, at what point does, you know, sort of believing in alternative things or whatever, like cross into something bad, right? Like at what point mm-hmm. does believing in fairies and believing in lizard people controlling the government, you know, what, when, does, when do these things cross into bad, evil things that should be stopped? That is a. I, I actually think that is a more difficult question than we like to admit. Like yeah. on one hand, the answer is not super hard. Like the answer is what it always is. It's about practice,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Like at, if if somebody is treating people with love and kindness, does it really matter what they believe in? And if it matters to us, why? you know, what, what is really bothering us in this moment? I don't know. I, I think that's like an easy rule of thumb. But at the same time, you know, uh, I get it. Like, maybe it's safer to just say in a world where you can believe in alternative facts, we should crush those, the, you know, we should, we should challenge and try to stop these alternative right wing facts in the same way that Ah, uh, we should challenge and stop somebody who believes that they're seeing fairies or or spirits or beings. I will say this though: I think that that and this is, I think, what attracted me to some of the writings. Some of I didn't read first things religiously, right? Like I've read there are people I liked to read, and they were written in first things sometimes. But I think what attracts me or attracted me to first things back in the day was this notion that said um uh there are ways of seeing the world that um are not crazy are not unreasonable they're just different
1: hmm.
0: um and uh and i think that's good i think that the uh, what am i what am i trying to say because uh, it's not I'm not trying to strike an alarmist thing because I don't think there's anything to be alarmed about really. but like, how can we approach the world religiously if we say that there is a there is a really real that is demonstrable using the scientific method, empirical data, all this stuff that that's really real and as long as your perspective at least resonates with that really real you're good if it doesn't there's a problem you're either at best wrong or at worst dangerous i don't know about that like that strikes me as um that strikes me as unhelpful yeah um uh, particularly when that there are really important things, like really important things to not only our culture but but many many human cultures and all over the world, that are not um, explainable and and understandable and uh, or at least not fully explainable and understandable using those criteria that I just mentioned, like love. Right, like love is not. um, In fact, when people attempt to turn love into something that is totally empirical, totally observable, totally understood using these six or seven frameworks, the experience of love defies all of that. Like, if you just say love is totally reduced to genetic instinct, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with with genetics or instinct or anything like that. But if it's only that, well then why is it so why is it so bad at doing what it's supposedly <laughs> designed to do? You yeah. know And also why if if the whole point is to further the race, why is it possible that out of love nobody has children? How is it possible out of love for the earth and, and out of love maybe even for uh, lives that people are making in other ways? our generation is having less children also let's just take me if it would probably not be very good if out of love i'm constantly weeping and fearing for my child's life to the point where i'm i could be you know harming my child's development why no. is love that good at making me that bad at being a parent I don't know. Uh, these are all very silly things that I brought up, but like, I, I find that's, I think what attracts me about stuff like that, where, where we can leave up space and open up space and say, no, there are, there are ways of interpreting our world that, and, and maybe this sort of modern, you know, or contemporary way of seeing the world scientifically or seeing the world empirically is just one interpretive framework among many.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I so I think that gosh, what was I just listening to? Um I feel like I just was just thinking about all of this uh, once again in terms of um you know when when kind of scientism and empiricism becomes your uh, like rooted in the enlightenment framework that when you need things to be measurable in order to be real, um, you it's almost like we abdicate responsibility for the things that do not fit into that framework. But so much of human existence doesn't fit into that framework. And there are very few people who go like completely hard empiricism, scientism. I only believe what I can see, taste, touch, feel. I mean, I think everybody... I think everybody experiences things that are beyond description, right? Uh, though they might want to, in various ways, try to reduce it down. Um, like Nancy Murphy, who's a science and religion scholar, talks about um, uh, the oh, I had the word in my brain. It's irreducible. Is it irreducible materialism?
0: I'll uh, think of okay. it another time.
1: Does, it, does that sound familiar it's, to it you? It
0: sounds right. Yeah, it sounds like something I get.
1: Yeah, yeah, that there comes a point where, like, you must admit that there is something more than white would exist uh, or what the than what science is capable of measuring and that's where you get into like the god of the gaps like every time that we create something and we say god must do this thing um like moving the planets or whatever there uh, eventually over time science and empirical observation can explain some of those mechanisms in a way that like you don't want to hang your hat on god made this specific this specific uh, material thing happen you know that's a problem that you run into with like creationism mm-hmm. um but it also is there's also you know gaps in nope i'm not even gonna say it i was gonna talk about evolution and i'm bringing all that back because i don't want to open that can of worms. um yeah I, I there's i think that there are a lot of good ways to think about how to be in this world um and i think like the discussion that we're having right now is a discussion that uh we aren't often able to have um, in the like environment that we live in today. Like it's, it is difficult for people coming from a variety of different backgrounds to co- po- let me, let me uh, specify. It's difficult for white people of different political backgrounds to come different political, different religious, different um, political, and religious are probably the two most important ones for what we're talking about now backgrounds to come together, um, and be able to say, you know, like I think there's something more than what is physically here. And that causes me to act this and this and this away, or, um, to say, well, I, you know, believe in that 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 God is moving things in our world around us, and that causes me to act this and this and this way. like every every position has such a wide variety of of options and ways of believing it. Um, and we're kind of, I think, in the middle of trying to figure out, I mean, I feel like we're still inheriting this from the Enlightenment, of trying to figure out um, what we do. Now that um, now that there is so much information that we can get using the technology that we have to observe the world around us, like the the scientific revolution is something that we we still haven't figured out, we still like, continue to fight over it. And, and, and it hasn't been an open discussion. It's a clash. You know, it is, it is the enlightenment and evangelicalism, you know, it is creationism and evolutionism. It is the big bang and creationism, you know, and then we don't get down to like medical ethics, which is where we really kind of need to be and where, where a lot of these things end up, right. You end up with vaccine hesitancy and people die. You end up with not believing that there's a real sickness out there and many more people die than needed to. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it this is not the only route for it, but because we can't have these conversations, we end up with um which is kind of misunderstanding each other, and then in that confusion, that allows players to to manipulate in order for their own in order to gain themselves which i think is what what the ird does you know like we could have good we've talked about this we could have good like doctrine conversations as united methodist or or conversations about our social principles or like any number of things that we kind of need to be thinking deeply about but we can't have those conversations because somebody forced the conversation about homosexuality as a wedge issue and that's all all we can focus On, You know, like we are very much disrupted from doing the work that we need to do, even like outside of caring for the poor or social justice or anything. I think we can all agree that like there's some doctrinal stuff we need to sit down and chat about (laughs) as people called Methodists. And we can't do it because we are we are constantly fighting over something that's actually a really important issue, but but has been made into a wedge issue at the expense of LGBTQ people.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm well and you're exactly right I, I I think you're right but the the hard thing in is is because we don't have these other conversations the wedge the, there's no way to actually t- have like a good faith conversation about the wedge issue right right like we lack the foundation and the building blocks to be able to have conversations about this right um, it's part of that manipulation you know where um the if you think about it listeners in terms of like simple to complex like the question of of lgbtq inclusion and and here i might be maybe parting with some other allies of mine just a little bit but like don't let anybody tell you it's a simple issue it's not and what i mean by that is not that it is morally complex i don't think it's morally complex but i do think it is sociologically, you know, relationally and theologically complex, we can't have like a real good faith conversation about LGBTQ inclusion and liberation as Methodist people without first uh, understanding what we mean by revelation, the Bible, um, holy life, uh, church, pastors, you know, like we can't do it. You know, because we we're already coming in with pre-established things, and and those aren't the things we're talking about, right? And so, like, if we have any hope of saying, like, of sitting and saying, "Hey, I think that it's a no-brainer that LGBTQ people should be ordained," and you talk to another person that that will look at you and say, "How is it possible that it's a no-brainer?" Right. Uh, and they immediately shut down and both sides immediately shut down because it's obvious to the other side. But that's just because we it, the, the issue has been foisted on us and and stirred in such a way that it is now impossible to have the other conversations we need to have. Right. Like if if you start with like if if you say this is my position and you and you are lucky enough to be in a good faith conversation with somebody on the other side where do you go from there where do you start with because here's the thing the other side including us have already been trained to hear and see the signs that they are dealing with a a theologically demented and morally repugnant person yeah right like like the, for example unless we say that the words of the bible are literally true they already are primed to believe that we are anti-biblical people right but here's the thing we can't begin with that premise and arrive at the conclusion that lgbtq people should be fully ordained <laughs> We (laughs) can't, it's not possible. And so we've already, the conversation has already been destroyed. It's already been defeated. Right.
1: Right. And that, that idea that the Bible must be literally true is so like deeply entrenched that uh, they can't give that up. You know, like that is, that is the idea that they must maintain. And so, yeah, then there is no room for conversation. Right. Right. Yeah, I remember the pastor who was at my home church when I was a teenager who was um is I'm sure now a global Methodist was definitely part of the Wesley Covenant Association. Um he uh signed on to a commitment to bi- biblical literalism that like people had drafted. Um and I remember I I remember coming home to it, so I don't know if this was when I was in college or if this was when I was it must have been in college, and I like I had just taken like a semester of like Hebrew Bible, you know, like the college level, um, mm-hmm. or maybe I had I was past that and I was taking like Biblical Hebrew. But I remember reading this and being like. I don't think this, you know, like there is no possible way that every word of the Bible is literally true because the Bible contradicts itself. So, like, I had, I was already at that, that phase. And so, like, my mom handed it to me to read, and I was like, well, I, I don't know that I agree with this. Like, I'm really uncomfortable with it. And she's like, why? It's just saying that the Bible is true. And I had to, like, sit down and unpack all of it and, and, really like explain well here are like the implications and like I I don't know what what they're thinking about but like other people who talk like this also say this and maybe that's the that's the tricky step though and that that's what I think is really tricky about talking about the IRD is that you sound like I I feel like we sound like crazy left-wing nuts when we say that like there is a group who specifically is like in the UMC led by Mark Tooley, who is trying to destabilize the UMC so that churches don't have a good social witness in the world anymore. And it's part of like the religious right movement that has been trying to preserve power for evangelicals in this country (laughs) since the end of segregation. And like, we, we sound like, again, like tin hat conspiracy theorists, but like, that is actually the situation. So like, it's difficult to, to explain to other people that there is like this force that is working against like against a good wholesome justice filled peace within our denomination that has no interest in that they only have interest in like the ways in which we can be out of their way for them to do what they want in the world um cuz you end up sounding like you were talking about a demonic power you end up talking t- sounding like you're talking about satan and then people go like to satanic panic which is not what we're talking about right we are talking yeah. about a completely different thing And I think that's a, that's another challenge with the conversation is that as you try to explain the ways in which, um, particular biblical hermeneutics have been exploited in order to divide, um, and the, when you try to explain to people that like, uh, that there is a particular manipulation happening, particularly with one theological position, um, like people just look at you like you're bananas or that you're being way too reactionary or something like that but then on the other hand like i know people whose lives have been affected by the tactics of the ird <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i know it for a fact it, yeah uh, yeah yeah I, that, I think that's where I struggle is I want to reopen the conversation in, in a lot of ways. You know, I want to be able to sit down with well-meaning people who most of the people in our pews are and, mm-hmm. and say, well, what do you really think about biblical literalism? Like, do you literally think there was a literal snake in a literal garden that literally talked to a woman? And if so, okay. But like, where do we go from there? You know, like what implications does that have? Let's genuinely talk through this. And, and instead you can't open up that door at all because the sides are so well defined.
0: Right. Right. I mean, even, even offering that question, right? Like it, makes people very defensive. It puts people up, right? Like it because they've been trained to hear. So they've been trained to listen for those things. I'll never forget being at Kerwinsville and having a a very difficult and awful conversation with a gentleman at Kerwinsville who was deep in the closet, um who admitted to me that he was gay, but that God was pushing that down very, very, very far. and and basically him him just saying, how in the world do you get around what is in the Bible? It's there. And I'm like, I know it's there, but, and then I I tried to explain to him, you know, like sexual orientation and, and what the clobber passages, you know, are, are even trying to say, like even if the clobber passages really do say what we think they're saying, there's no way that they can anticipate this this idea, all of the gendered and all of the relational and, and you know, concentrations that go into what we understand as being gay, right? Like right. being gay and this act or that, that the Bible may or may not be talking about are two different things. And this guy interrupted me and he said, man, there's no fucking difference. And, and I'm like, well, yes, there is. And then he goes, who cares? Who cares? Hmm. Who cares if there is a difference? It matters what the Bible means to me now. And uh, and Joe, he's right. Yeah, he's right. Like like that's I think the the other dimension to all of this, all of the ways, you know. And this is maybe the evil genius of the IRD, and and maybe just the church doing very lazy things when it comes to training lay people and pastors about reading the bible all of the tricks that we've learned and used to help people be interested in the bible are biting us in the ass
1: Hmm. Mm. right
0: like it doesn't matter what the bible meant in the past what matters is what the bible is saying to you now what is the spirit telling you now the spirit is telling me now that being gay is a sin ah but That's not what the Bible might not be saying then. It doesn't matter what the Bible is saying then. Right. You know, but here's the thing. We do that too. I mean, and that's not a both-side-ism. One thing is very clearly worse than the other. I'm just saying that, like, anytime a left-wing person claims that Jesus wants us to be a socialist, is fucking wrong. Like, like, like there, there's no right. such thing as socialism in the Bible. There's no such thing as Marxist critique. There's no such thing as any of this stuff. And so when we attempt to say, but what do we say? Well, it doesn't matter that there's no socialism in the past. There could be socialism now. And so, what matters is what the Sermon on the Mount says to me now. Okay, well, which one is it? <laughs> and, and and we can say over and over that it's an art form, right? We always do that. Well, it's an art. We got to go back and forth and do all this stuff and yada yada yada. Uh, come on, like like all of the stuff we've taught our congregations and 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 how people have been taught to think have led us here. Yeah. You know, how do you correct that? What do you say? Do you say, well, sometimes we read the Bible historically, and other times we we read the Bible and listen for the Spirit to to teach us anew, uh, and. We're, we're liberal, left-leaning people. We don't want to make too many orthodox statements because what if, we, what if we keep the spirit from telling us a new thing? Well, here's the thing. If all of that comes together and now all what we have are um, finally people being honest, right? Like we can demonstrate to people, and I have, and you have as well, that nobody is actually a biblical literalist. That, right. that that nobody does that, that we all pick and choose. We all interpret one thing metaphorically and another thing literally and another thing historically. And we do that, you know, as dynamically and strangely as we can. And finally, more and more people are being honest and they go, fine, I'm not a biblical literalist, but I hate gay people. And, and I just don't care. I'm just glad that I can make the Bible work for me. And and here's the other thing, Joe, and I really think this is true as well. I think this is, and this is, I blame the IRD in part for this in our church too, like eventually, and it's happening more and more, they're just going to go, if we demonstrate that the Bible still doesn't support that, they're just going to throw the Bible away. and I, yeah. And they're just going to be like, great, fine. I still hate gay people and uh maybe god doesn't need the bible to tell me to hate gay people maybe this is just a revelation and if you throw that away then they'll just be like fine i still hate gay people
1: uh, yeah so so yes i agree i also think that that is not that is so just just to I feel like I'm muddying the waters, but I think I'm clarifying a position that like not every person who has a question about what the Bible means about homosexuality is a homophobe, you know, no, I agree. Um, there, And not every person who has a question about how we read the Bible is a homophobe. But I do think that the people who are using homosexuality um, as a wedge issue and the people who are like really committed homophobes will do exactly what you're saying, because that's their prior conviction, right? Their prior conviction isn't, um, I need to be open and curious about what I can learn and how I can love people better. Their prior conviction is, I don't like gay people and and for some people like i'm just putting my like pastoral hat on the explanation for why they don't like gay people is because a gay person was bad to them in their lives and like that's real and i'm not discrediting that but also your experience does not mean that an entire group of people need to be discriminated against and and having those conversations in the middle of having a conversation about biblical hermeneutics that people are trained to react poorly to in the middle of conversation about what do we do with our church buildings, because we need to leave this denomination in the middle of the larger political landscape that says that, you know, if you're a good Christian, you're voting for Donald Trump, because he is the manly man who is going to get us through this ungodly time. You know, like, it is, there are so many ways to lose in that that set of conversations, which is why these conversations are so hard, and they need to be done where you are in a position to trust each other and understand each other's stories, and be able to like look around and think in in a good and complicated way about about this. Because as we say, it's not easy. But you cannot do that when you have other people stirring up shit to say to even have a conversation about this is uh means that like something unethical is happening means that something like evil is happening to even think about accepting gay people means that like evil is already in people's hearts and that's very that is very different than the people who are like i can't have a conversation anymore with people who don't who who aren't for affirmation because like i've had it i've done it like i know where i stand and i also know that like I, I am on the side of loving people better. And so like, however it falls out, I can't be that person in the middle um, and I think a lot of pastors also can't be that person in the middle to have that conversation because their churches don't have enough money, they're overworked and underpaid, they are undersupported because all of the middle management of the UMC has been drained and drained and drained away and we haven't had a general conference so there's so much stuff that's just on hold, uh, in the middle of, again, a society that's politically polar polarized. And in the middle of an economy and inflation that is not making anything any easier at all, it's really impossible. (laughs) Like, all of the factors have come together to make this incredibly, incredibly difficult. And there are definitely people who, even if you were to have a million compassionate conversations with them, um, and even if they were to say, I don't care about the Bible, I don't care about Revelation, I do just hate gay people, like those aren't the people to spend any effort on but those people are still there and you still have to you know like it's it's when they talk about teaching and like you spend all of your time focusing on the problem kids because you have to be able to maintain a safe environment when you're a teacher, you can't just kick a kid out, right? I mean, you send them to the principal's office, but they're going to come back to your class eventually. Um, or they go to juvie and then that's a whole other question. But like when you're a pastor, you're also not really enabled to kick out the person who is sitting in the back saying like, I don't like, I, I belong here. I'm going to stay here. And also you're wrong for ever accepting a gay person. And I don't, I don't really care to hear anything different. Um, that's not the usual situation, but like those intractable cases, I don't know what you do, like other than other than ignore them and try to work around them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean to like, you know, I'm not I don't mean to unload or I don't mean to whatever. I'm just trying to be really honest about the situation. Yeah. Right. Like I don't want us to think or anybody to think that like there's a magic bullet to fix any of this because there really isn't. Right. And I think that this is the um, the uh, the thing about, you know, the state of our church in the world in light of these right wing groups and like the IRD and, and others. Right. Like on one hand, on one hand, the IRD is actively attempting to destroy things. And is succeeding. And on the other hand, we we ourselves are not very good at this. Right? Like we church people and seminarians and, and the structures that we have are just not very good at defending ourselves and and, and we're not very good at, at seeing, you know, maybe what we do, Christian education, discipleship you know, good biblical hermeneutics and teaching good biblical hermeneutics. I just don't know if we're very, not only very good at teaching that, but we're, we're not very good at seeing it for what it is, which is um, in light of like right-wing Christian, you know, like wedding and light of right-wing Christian, like coming, you know, coming together, um, all of this stuff is a matter of life and death now. Yeah. Like we just have to, you know, churches just and pastors and lay people and everybody in between just has to take this very seriously and be very good at making sure that good hermeneutics are being taught. And it's not like we can control people, like like that's not what I'm saying, but like it's gotta be better than whatever we're doing now. Yeah. Just sort of allowing things, you know, to happen and hoping for the best. And, and like everything you said, I think is right. Like pastors are, you know, we're all overworked and underpaid and, and, and this is an enormous problem that is systemic that we can't sort of fix on our own. Yeah, that's all fine. Like I, you are right, but um, who is going to fix it? Yeah. Right. Like, and if the answer is no, then nobody uh, then let's just quit. You know, like like I'm I'm not trying to quit. You know, I'm do what I need to do for money and because I love the church deep down. But like if 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 we really just don't have a win strategy, if 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 we really don't know how things are going to be fixed, if if we really are that incompetent at protecting lgbtq people and and teaching and making disciples of jesus christ if we're that bad maybe we should just close up shop
1: boy i mean i listen every time i think about i a residential school, a Native American boarding school, I think that, like, we have committed too great a sin to continue, and we should have closed up shop a long time ago. Um, like, there's no recovering from that. The harm is too big. There are so many other harms that I feel that are too big, you know? Like, um and I, like, genuinely really struggle with that. You know, like, every genuinely every time I think about residential schools, I think I can no longer be a Christian. This was done in the name of Christianity, and Christianity is irredeemable. Like, game over. We're done. But, but also not, ev- not every Christian agrees with me. Right. And so then I just go off and be disaffected, which is, is a valid option. Um, Like walking away from Omelas is a valid option. But I think that um, what I continually feel called back to is, is that like, there is harm to be undone. Like there is even if it is slow, agonizing patient work, there is work to do. Um, this is what it was, is I was um, at a, a uh, information session that was put on by uh, the AIDS response effort in our area that talked about... Um, the new like the hiv pills that we have now that can like have you um virus suppressed and able to essentially live your life as if you don't have hiv and not transmit hiv and it's just one pill and you can take it any time of day and you can get it for free and you can get it in like blister packs that you can put in your pocket and just take like we can end hiv in the United States at least right now like we we have the capacity and that's not happening um and and it floors me but it's not happening because there's misunderstanding about and stigma about HIV there is not um enough people on the ground building the relationships that need to happen between doctors and the pharmaceutical companies and people who need this this drug you know there is there is so much suspicion that is only being driven by external circumstances that like the community building job is really difficult, but it's not impossible, right? You put a clinic on, on not every corner, but you put a clinic in every neighborhood that needs this care and you put doctors in those clinics who are, their only job is to reach out to people who need this care and they sit down and they have conversations and they educate people and they educate people and they educate people and they're community partners to make sure everybody has what they need in order to be able to take this. You even assign like somebody who's only Job is to make sure that a person gets in the routine of taking their medication and then you've done it, right? Like then it's possible. And somebody somewhere is funding all this, and like that's another question, but there's always money. You can you can go get the money. It is just a matter of people like sitting down and deciding this is exactly what we're gonna do, and this is how we're gonna do it. And that is the most difficult thing, especially in the church, is we cannot get a group of people to come together and say, this is how we're going to fight. Homophobia in the United Methodist Church. We are going to pass this specific legislation that's going to happen in this order in this way. We are going to reach out to people in this and this and this way. We are going to invest in these communities in this and this and this way. We are going to have these workshops that are going to have people let people talk about everything they think about. Like, we are going to put in the man hours to make sure that, like, this is never an issue again. We are going to get people, we're going to train every single pastor on how to talk about hermeneutics differently. And we are going to have supervision to make sure that they are talking about it in this way. And if they don't talk about it in the way that's going to enable us to move forward, if they continue to foment a sense of unsecurity and um, uh, this, this kind of divisiveness, then we're going to invite them to no longer be there and we're gonna do the work of recruiting somebody better to be in their place. Like if we were to do a full court press, if we were to design a strategy and stick to it, and we have done strategies and stuck to it before, we changed the US Constitution for temperance you know if we were to do this it's possible we would just have to make it happen and there I don't know why exactly the motivation isn't there but it's not there and I know part of it is because there are people who are actively trying to separate us and tell us things that aren't true but I also think that like Man, church just doesn't matter enough to people anymore to put in that much effort. Meanwhile, the church just goes on running around town, biting people like a rabid dog. And yeah, in that case, if you can't contain it, I guess you shoot it. But like, it, we don't have to, right? We have, it is not an un, unachievable task. It's just a really difficult one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think that that's, this was not a short mini-sode, was it?
1: No, Um, we got into it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I think that that's what's always on the table for me, you know, as we wrap this up, right? Like the forces of evil are so powerful and they're so organized and they're so strong. And we have been told, and maybe this is a product of uh, Methodism itself. Maybe this is a product of... The kind of of people we are and the kind of things we imbibe, I think we were told something wrong about evil, hmm. that it's, I don't know, easy to beat, or that it's it's uh, not as strong as we think it is, or that it doesn't it's all bark and not a lot of bite, or you know whatever whatever the cliche is, and I think that. Um, I think it's pretty clearly not true. Right. You know, I think that uh, we are um, uh, overwhelmed on all sides, you know, and it doesn't mean like you're saying, it doesn't mean that there is no win strategy. It just means that the only people now who I think are willing to participate in the fight are people who are prepared to lose a lot.
1: Yeah. And that's really disappointing and frustrating and heartbreaking and, like, causes me to despair. Maybe kind of a... a, To like, give us a little glimmer of hope. I think about myself when I like started going to Wesley, as we like kind of end this I think about when I started going to Wesley, I was very determined that like my ministry was going to be to go back to Western North Carolina, and be somebody who could be there for gay kids in Western North Carolina in the church. Like, I was like, they need a pastoral presence who is there, who's going to tell them that it's okay to be who they are, that they are loved and that they are beautiful. And in order to be that presence, I have to lie about that, uh, that I think that, you know, like I have to be willing to lie in paperwork and in a lot of official and important conversations about my support for LGBTQ people, um, because that's the only way i'm going to be able to be in in that position of power that i need to be in in order to like care for these gay kids you know like yeah. i'm just gonna to have to lie about it that's what i'm gonna to have to do and um one of my first like three conversations with ian he was in the refectory and he was like sitting at a table and there was some position petition that was about um supporting gay people in the umc and like god knows if i remember what it was but ian's sitting there and he's like yeah this is this is what this is and um this is why we're here and like if you sign this this is where it'll go And I remember, like, standing there and being like, well, the goal is to, like, be quiet, right? Because that's how I will be able to get into the position of power that I need to be in. Um, And so I can't sign this because, like, they'll know. Um, And, like, something snapped in my brain. I Like, I don't know what changed within me, but I was like, fuck it, I'm going to sign it. Because it is more important to me to be out loud about this than to be quiet about this. And if that costs me something, then that costs me something. But like, this is what I have to do, right? And if I can, in a split second, change my whole understanding of what advocacy looks like, that's possible for others too. Mm. And it won't look like the beautiful man that is Ian sitting at a table. But it might, you know, it might generally look like one connection, one place that is a victory. And enough of those get the movement going. Not that the movement isn't going. Not that there aren't people working about it, uh, working on it. It's just that nobody can agree on strategy because that's what it means to be a leftist. But yeah, I, I... want to despair so often because I do see signs of this being an unwinnable fight or um a cause that is never going to come to its conclusion if we don't want to use violent language um, but then I also know that like people do actually change um, and and if we can what's it's the there's a Angela Davis quote that's like, you have to believe that changing the world is possible and you have to believe it every day or something like that. Like that, that is the only way that change happens. And if change does not actually happen in the UMC, if it does end up being that like this whole thing is going to burn down and be done at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have learned a lot of lessons about how to not make change And that means Mm. that the energy that we put into this denomination, we can now turn out into the world. And that's a powerful force. And so even in the worst case scenario, there's still, there's still life, you know, there's still that potential for resurrection.
0: Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I think that's right.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, too. I think that's right, too. Um, (sighs) Okay. Okay. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini sort of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Spank Reebok and the Dude, and we will see you next time.
1: What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schumwolf, performed by Joe Schumwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Find us across the internet at WTHIAP or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.